0: What time is it? Or rather, when are we? How do we frame the times that we're living in? This is important because how we frame the times that we're living in determines our expectations and drives our actions. And the frame or the lens that we want to have is the one that Jesus gives us. We're between his death and resurrection on the one hand and his glorious return on the other. This doesn't take away from the importance of determining where we are in human history by other means such as uh, the evolution of economic, uh, economic systems or the development of technology or the advancement of civil rights. But it does set our expectations and inform our actions for every single area of our lives. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 28. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find this passage in, on page 829 in the Bibles under the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles at the back, and you're just welcome to take one this morning. So Matthew 24, beginning in verse 1, says this, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but then he answered, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there is not, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? The disciples answered him, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, and will never be. And have those days not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead many astray. See, I have told you beforehand. Oh. So they, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Whoever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. The emphasis of today's text is that Christians should expect troubles in life, in opposition to the gospel message in particular, as we wait for Jesus' return. I've separated the text into three sections this morning. First, we have a journey to endure, verses 1 through 13. In verses 14 through 22, we have the end of a world. And in verses 23 through 28, we have a king who is coming. So first, we have a journey to endure, and it is a journey to endure. This is the longest point, just so you know, so the sermon is not going to be super long, but this first point is quite a bit longer than the others. In verse 1, we see that Jesus is leaving the temple. He had pronounced judgment on the leaders of Israel in the previous passage in the seven woes. He had lamented that it had to be this way, but the unwillingness of the people to follow God or listen to Him as prophets resulted in God abandoning them. It prevented God from gathering them together. The beginning phrase of Matthew 24 says, Jesus left the temple. And this could easily be a throwaway phrase that we don't think about, but consider that Jesus is God. He's the presence of God on earth. And He's leaving the place that has been His primary place of presence uh, during the Israelite time. He's abandoning it. The presence of God is walking out of the temple. Never to return. And as he's leaving, the disciples are admiring the building. Mark's gospel has them saying, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They were marveling at what Jesus had just abandoned. And it would have been easy to admire the temple. King Herod had put so, much re- so many resources into the temple and expanded it such that it was a thirty, 35-acre uh, compound with a series of gates and courts for various purposes, It was a magnificent series of structures that would have been awe-inspiring. But no matter its magnificence, Jesus tells them that there's no future for the temple. There's nothing left for it but to be destroyed. And that was significant because it was the meeting place for the Sanhedrin, who were the highest court of Jewish law in the Roman period. and was also the center of their religious practice. To say that it was going to be destroyed would have been seen as both unpatriotic and irreverent. This is one of the claims brought against Jesus at his trial. The disciples were distracted by the physical structure of Herod's temple. And it was a symbol of an earthly kingdom. It was this symbol of an earthly kingdom that would have reinforced their hope in a Messiah coming to conquer the Romans, overthrow them, overthrowing their oppressors and ushering a time of peace for Israel and freedom. And Jesus is directing them away from this idea. He's saying, don't be impressed by what's going away. Look to me. In verse 3, we see that Jesus and the disciples make their way to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples have a question. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the disciples' question shows that they thought the destruction of the temple and the end of the world would have to coincide with one another. An event as cataclysmic as, as the destruction of the temple would have to mean the end of the world as a whole. They were ready for the kingdom to arrive. They were ready for the fruit of their hope, but they didn't realize that the fruit of their hope would be realized after a long period of difficult things. In the following verses, Jesus shows that the destruction of the temple and his coming were separate events. The disciples shouldn't expect an easy way to the kingdom. Now, I should say that at the outset of this Chapter that this is a chapter that's highly debated as to exactly what's going on and the various timelines are set forth, but regardless of the interpretation, the meaning for us is the same. We should expect trouble in general and opposition to the gospel, in particular as we wait for King Jesus to return. As we move on to verse four, Jesus begins to answer the question with a warning to be the da- of the danger of being led astray. In order to protect them, he tells them that wars and natural disasters don't necessarily mean that the end of the world is near. And when these things happen, Jesus wants to warn them that there are going to be people that are going to want to lead them away from their hope in him. They were going to play on the hopes and fears of the people in the face of wars and natural disasters. And not only wars and natural disasters, but it, because these things were, are things that are in common to all, but actually the... There was also a reality of persecution. Followers, followers of Jesus were going to be hated by all nations and severely persecuted. And this would come from both the disciples' own people and the Gentile nations. And there would be many that would be led astray. There would be those who were ready to lead people out of faith in Jesus and into faith in something else. In verse 12, we see that lawlessness would be increased and, the, and love would run cold. And Now, lawlessness could look like just obvious sin and, and going against the law of God, but it could also look like the lawlessness of the Pharisees who cleaned themselves up on the outside, but inside they were full of hypocrisy. And the result of this lawlessness is that the love between people would grow cold. And the hope in all this is not that we're going to be able to avoid it, but that God's people will be able to endure it. Endurance to the end is one of the things that marks a true disciple of Jesus. And endurance doesn't just mean sitting still, though. Verse 14 shows that during uh, the time that Jesus is talking about, there will be a, a proclamation of the gospel to all nations until the end. This verse is a touchstone for global missions, but there are various interpretations in Colossians 1.6, Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. And this is a letter that was written before the fall of the temple. So this could mean that everything that Jesus is talking about here was fulfilled in the time before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. But that's not my view. In Matthew 24.29, later on, which is the first verse of the passage in next week's uh, sermon, the return of Jesus happens immediately after the tribulation of those days. That hasn't happened, and so Jesus hasn't returned yet, and so therefore, my view is that these verses, verses three through 14, are those days that represent all the time between Jesus' first and second coming that we see in verse 29. Therefore, these verses apply directly to us. And another reason I think this way is because these trials and tribulations, these natural disasters and war and persecution have been a reality for the church throughout its history. Whether we're referred to directly here or whether, whether we're to follow the example of first century Christians who experience these things, we're shown how to live in the light of the things that Jesus is talking about in these verses. Wars and rumors of wars are a reality for us. There's war ongoing now. There's rumor of war. We may be ending at the end, we may be at the end of, uh, we may be end at the Ah, sorry, we may be at the end of the post-Cold War peace that was brought about by the fall apart, falling apart of the Soviet Union. And the fear that can come from large-scale war is anxiety-provoking. Natural disasters ravage our communities here in our country and around the world. We're not severely persecuted here, but there are countries in which Christians can lose their lives for what they believe in. And it does seem to be getting, getting harder to be a Christian here where we live. And there are many who are falling away. The response to all of this, it would be easy to be fearful in response to all of this. But instead, we're to hope in the coming King Jesus. And as we hope in that day, Jesus is telling us to do two things. First, don't be led astray. And second, endure. So first, don't be led astray. And one of the first steps we must take in not being led astray is admitting that we are vulnerable to being led astray. Are you willing to admit that to yourself this morning, that you are vulnerable? We must try to identify what those vulnerabilities are. False teachers are successful because their messages already have resonance in our hearts. We want false teachers to scratch that itch that Jesus' words and the words of the rest of the Bible just don't seem to scratch. There are messages that appeal to me because of who I am and where I'm from and how I think, that don't align with the way of Jesus, and the same goes for all of us. And so it's important for us to consider what those things are for all of us, for each one of us, so that we can be prepared to not be led astray. A few ways that we see people led astray in Scripture, and we see some of this with the uh, Pharisees, are uh, being led astray by self-promotion. The Pharisees used religion as a means of promoting themselves, and the things of God became a means to something else rather than a means to knowing and enjoying Him. There are teachers who will build platforms based in teaching the truth in order to make their names great. And like the beauty of the temple that the disciples were admiring, we admire their teaching for its beauty, their ability to turn a phrase, and we we love them for what they are in themselves instead of seeing them as a gift of God and a way to know Him and love Him better. And the danger is not just on the outside, but within each one of us. How easily do we turn the things we learn and know about God into means of feeling good about ourselves and promoting ourselves to others. The beauty of the gospel is that we don't need to promote ourselves. God sent his son to die for us so that our sins might be forgiven despite who we are. His grace pardons us, but it also cleanses within So we should avoid messages that merely teach good morals, because morality without the gospel of Jesus leads to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, because the best that we can do with Jesus' teaching without the power that comes from the Holy Spirit is put up a good front and clean the outside of the cup. The most dangerous part of that is we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're good and insulate ourselves from the sinful condition of our hearts. When we insulate ourselves this way, we're insulating ourselves from the hope of the gospel that can cleanse us from the inside out. We also have to beware of earthly political agendas. Some in Jesus' day expected him to be a conquering king, and when he proved to be a suffering servant, they looked elsewhere. Jesus didn't hand them a kingdom or tell them to take it themselves by force, and this was unsatisfying to some religious zealots of the day would try to bring the kingdom by their own efforts. In the unsettling times of he- ahead, it would provide these leaders with an opportunity to claim prophetic status, status and leverage the hopes and fears of the people to their advantage. And the very same thing is going on today. Leaders play on the fears of people to advance themselves and their platforms. Fear has this tendency, it has the danger of short-circuiting the hope we have in Jesus. And it can tempt us to take things into our own hands or it give undue trust and power to others. We can can fail to critique the positions and character of those on our side of whatever issue because we're so afraid of the other side that we're convinced it's wholly evil. Sometimes we put so much hope in various movements that we place a weight on them that only the coming kingdom of Jesus can bear. And like those zealots who put their hope in a worldly kingdom that the Messiah was going to come, only to see the temple destroyed in AD 70, we end up disappointed as well. We should work for a more just and fair society. But we must recognize that our success in those endeavors will be limited in some way. And this doesn't paralyze us from pursuing needed change, but it tempers our expectations and keeps our hope firmly set on Jesus, who tells us that the way for Christians in this world will be difficult, but that the path is sure. So we're to beware of being led astray, but we're also to endure. And endurance, people aren't called to endurance to something that's easy, but to something that's hard. And followers of Jesus are called to endure a lot in verses 3 through 14. Jesus says it's going to be painful. And in verse 8, Jesus compares it to birth pains. Now, I had, I had thought to use this story and then decided not to, but when reading this through and discussing with this, with this with Julie, uh, she said I should use the story, and so I used this with her permission and, and, and an encouragement. Last year, when Julie was pregnant with our baby Florence, she experienced some severe and significant birth pains. The pain and intensity went beyond the normal Braxton Hicks contractions and was really false labor. And they were so intense at times, we were, we were sure she was in labor, and we even went to the doctor one time, sure that the time had come, but it hadn't, and there were many painful times ahead. All the signs of labor were there, but nothing came of it until the day Our baby Florence arrived. And just as Julie had to endure the pains of childbearing, we're called to endure the pains of the kingdom that is to come. And as we'll see later in the chapter, the day and the hour are uncertain, but how we're to live and how we're to endure is not. So how do we endure? We first look to and run with Jesus Jesus has called us to abide in Him, and that we can do nothing without Him. So we abide in Jesus, but we also run together. We abide in God's people, with God's people, that He's giving us. Philippians 1:27 says this: "Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We're not called to go it alone. We're, tried, we're called to link arms together as God's church and strive side by side. For the gospel. And when we're enduring difficult things, it's encouraging to have others go along with us in that journey. So take advantage of the gift of God's people. That's what we're doing together. This isn't my idea or any other human's idea. This is God's idea to gather us together. That we might be encouraged in our faith and endure and press on in the, in the lives that God has called us to live. So we run together, but we also run with Purpose. As I've already said, endurance doesn't mean that we just simply sit still and wait for the kingdom to come. We've got things to do. And one of the primary things we're called to do is share the gospel of the kingdom with all nations. And as a church, we support missionaries in our country and around the world in areas that need a gospel witness. And with the advantage of modern technology, we can even serve the nations in this way without even leaving where we live. We recently commissioned someone who is staying here, but directly involved in supporting translation translation work that's going to help people get the Bible in their own language. But we still need people to go, so consider praying that very dangerous prayer that whether or not God might call you overseas. But we're all called, in our wherever God places us, to seek to share the gospel around us. And I know that calls to share the gospel, uh, often when I hear them, they can result in there's some measure of shame, and I admit that my... Uh, my fear of man causes me to share the gospel less than, than I would like to. In my Bible reading recently, I ran across 1 Thessalonians 2.4 that says this, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So I don't want to put any extra weight of shame on me or you, but what I want to do is say, let's pray as a church that we become people who love God and want to see our, what we do approved by him so much and want to please him so much that it overpowers our fear of man and enables us to share Jesus with others more freely. Running with purpose also means, it it means sharing the gospel, but it also means living like Jesus calls us to live. What does that mean? Well, part of what it means is what Jesus has been showing us throughout the book of Matthew. Jesus has challenged the understandings of how things are supposed to work in the world in many ways. In the Beatitudes, found in Matthew 5, it is the meek that inherit the earth, not the powerful. Later in that message, he says that we are to love those who hate us and even pray for them. So when lawlessness in the world causes people's love to run cold, we reject letting our love run cold. And we pray for those who are set in opposition to us. Later in Matthew, Jesus teaches the disciples that whoever would be first among them will be servant of all. And so instead of using power and authority and leadership as a means of putting our thumb on others, we're to serve others when we're put in positions of power. He turns the view of authority and leadership upside down. We live distinctly of God's people, but we also don't live disconnected. Another time in the the time of God's people, when they were put into exile, God tells them through the prophet Jeremiah to to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and to pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare and this means that we pray and we work for the overall good in the cities and towns with people that don't believe what we believe because their well-being the well-being of our city is connected to our well-being there's so much more to say what as to what it means to live like Jesus calls us to live that I can't get into today, but that's, by, that's why we meet together and we try to discern together with the scriptures how we're supposed to live our lives as exiles together. But we won't always be exiles. So we should run with our eyes on the finish line. Consider the words of Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables even him to subject all things to himself. If we know where the finish line is and we know what we set out to do, we can set our expectations accordingly. Jesus has said that the pathway will be difficult, but the way is sure. We're in a marathon and we shouldn't expect the kingdom of heaven in its fullness before Jesus gets back. But we do know where we're headed and we can hope in that as we labor until he comes. You might be finding it hard to endure this morning. You may be experiencing difficulty in life that is crushing to you. My encouragement to you is to look back to what we just said earlier, to run with God's people and be with God's people. And there are times when I come in, I work for a church, I'm, I'm here all the time, there comes times when I come in and I don't feel like singing and praising God, but the worship of the people encourages my faith. I need church. I need this gathering That we have together. So if you're finding it difficult to endure, pull others in around you. Don't go it alone. Maybe you're in a season of doubt. And I want you to know that the seasons of doubt are often just that. They're just seasons. And there can be a time past doubting. Dostoyevsky said, it is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. If you're facing the furnace of doubt, again, we want to come around you and help you as you work through various questions that come as a part of living in our world and and looking at what it means to be a Christian. As we endure, Jesus sadly says that there will be those who don't. There will be those who don't remain in the faith. Jesus warns uh, here of false teachers leading people astray, and there's plenty of that happening in our day. I've seen friends uh, deconstruct their faith and build communities around their post-Christian experiences, and it breaks my heart to see. And it's hard and it's frustrating because they're right about some of the criticisms they have for the church. The church has failed them massively, and the church's failure makes it even easier for those who have messages that aren't based in the hope of Jesus to be believed and followed. That's why it's so important for us to match our message with our manner of living that's worthy of the gospel that we've been given You might be on that pathway this morning. There may be a lot of things that you need to disentangle from your faith in Jesus that you were taught growing up. But my encouragement to you is not to give up on Jesus himself. The hope of Jesus' return is that there's a cosmic answer to the worst injustice in the world and the worst twisting of religion that we saw with the Pharisees and that we see even today. We can endure because we know at the end of all this, Jesus is coming in his kingdom. One day our faith will be sight. So let's take our part as a church on the path to endure till he comes. In verses 15 through 22, we see the end of a world. And while I interpret verses 3 through 14 to be the time between Jesus' first and second coming, there are several reasons to believe that verses 15 through 22 are referring, referring specifically to the period leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., First, the setting is a strong indicator because, that it's speaking of the literal destruction of the temple because when Jesus spoke this word, these words to the disciples, they were standing on the Mount of Olives, which would have overlooked the temple grounds. Next, this desolation, abomination of desolation is clearly identified in Luke's account as armies surrounding Jerusalem, which is what happened in 70 AD. And third, the language of the passage just seems to be limited to Judea. They're running from the city... Sabbath laws are still in effect. And Jesus says, not let one go on his housetop, go down. And this would have only made sense in a context where people's homes were constructed in such a way where they could sit on top of the roof um, with flat roofs like those houses in, in that time. Now, verse 21 could be seen as a snag in this interpretation. Are those days really so unique that we can say that there will be no times like it before or after, particularly considering the horrific events of? Uh, the 20th century. The destruction of 70 AD was uniquely, was uniquely devastating. Sparing some more of the graphic details of his account, here are the words of Josephus, the Jewish historian who witnessed these events. He says that it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing left to make those that came to see it, that is Jerusalem, had ever been inhabited. So Jesus' prophecy about Jerusalem being destroyed came true. And it was destroyed so fully that it was almost as if it never was. It never recovered politically or religiously. It wasn't the end of the world, but it was the end of the world as they knew it. Verse 22 tells us that God brings these times to an end by the power of his sovereign hand and for the sake of the elect, those who would endure in faith in him till the end. Because his prophecy about the destruction of the temple came true, and because he brought those days to an end, we can trust in his words to us to endure whatever times that we find ourselves in. Finally, in verses 23 through 29, we're to look for a king who is coming. The fall of the temple, as I said, would have been the end of the world as they knew it. And Jesus didn't want him, when that happened, to lose their hope in him. He didn't want them to be deceived by people claiming to be Jesus or the Messiah or people um, claiming to speak for God. And when their world fell apart, the temptation to run to quick saviors would be strong. And people would be there ready to capitalize on it. But Jesus is reassuring that his return will not be in secret. He isn't to be found isolated in the desert or hidden in the closet. And in the early church, there were secret of cults that tried to make the way of Jesus more, uh, more limited and secret than it really is. And today we see the same kind of thing with people joining cults or believing in apocalyptic conspiracy theories that make them feel like they're part of something special. Jesus mentions that even the elect may be led astray, and so even believers may be deceived into believing and following these kinds of things that can be destructive to themselves and destructive to their witness. Jesus assures us that his return won't be hidden, and neither is the movement of his people. We aren't drawn toward a concentrated location to sit and wait for the kingdom, but to spread throughout the world to share the good news of Jesus' death, resurrection, and eventual return. What Jesus tells us about the difficulty of life now and how things will end should not result in fear, but in sober assessment of the times that we live in. Many teachers in our day would have us live in fear, the fear of losing something, the fear of change, the fear that things are never going to change, fear of people who aren't like us, things like global war or the transformation of society as a result of emerging technologies like AI or the threats to our democracy that we see here and around the world could end the world as we know it. But we know from what we saw earlier that even if the world ends as we know it, it doesn't mean that the end of the world has come And when the world does end, Jesus is coming back to set up his kingdom of justice and righteousness forever. As we end today, we we look at verse 28, a lovely metaphor for Jesus and his people that says, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Now, there have been various attempts at cleaning up and strenuous language to mean, you know, the vultures are actually eagles, and there's all kinds of different ways of trying to interpret that, but... Jesus is saying that those who belong to Jesus will gather to Jesus as unerringly as vultures gather to their source of nourishment. They know where their hope is, and we do too. Our hope, regardless of how we interpret this passage or other parts of the Bible that speak of Jesus' return, is that Jesus does come back, and all Christians agree with the words of the Apostles' Creed that we'll read together in a moment, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. In the end, Jesus comes back, and Jesus wins. There are a number of ways to respond to Jesus' words this morning. If you're a Christian, you can rejoice in the message that Jesus is coming back. And through the strength that we get through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can endure till the end. You can begin to think about where you're tempted to be led astray from your hope in Jesus you can seek to be more intentional about sharing the gospel in your life and, and seeking to love God more so much that you're more uh, concerned with pleasing him than fearing others. If you're not a Christian, we want you to know that above everything else, this message is what we're about. We're about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in, in return. And that you can be forgiven for your sins, if you trust in him. And if you're considering Christ this morning, I encourage you to come and talk to one of us, or you can fill that out on the Connect card when the offering baskets are passed around. So church, let's let's rejoice as we encounter worldly trouble and opposition for the gospel as we wait for his return. Let's do that in hope as we continue to worship this morning. Let me pray for us.